Okay, we're going to be in Daniel chapter number 11 tonight. Daniel chapter 11, and we were uh, in the first half of this chapter last week, and um, what we were looking at, I said it was a little bit more like a history lesson that we were going through, because in Daniel chapter number 11, it has probably the, the highest concentration of prophecies of any chapter in the entire Bible, and it is also probably the, uh, the most specific prophecies uh, the most detailed prophecies in the entire Bible. And so as we look at Daniel chapter 11, we've talked about how uh, the skeptics try to say that this had to have been written after the fulfillment because of how accurate it is and how specific it is. But we find that there are plenty of evidences that this was written before the fulfillment of it. One of the main evidences of this is the fact that uh, that the canon of Scripture was already settled around the time of Ezra. We have Ezra the scribe there in uh, the Old Testament, in the end of the Old Testament, and he was one of the ones that helped to formulate the uh, the canon of Scripture, the accepted uh, books of the Bible, if you will, of the Old Testament, and Daniel was included in it. Uh, not only that, but throughout the uh, period between the Testaments, uh, it was settled, it was... Uh, even being translated into other languages in the middle of the time whenever it was being fulfilled. And so there's plenty of things that tell us that Daniel is authentic, that it was written by Daniel. It was written during the time of uh, the exile. On top of that, if none of those things um, convince us, uh, we find that Jesus Christ himself, while he was on the earth, uh, in the New Testament, attributes the writings of the book of Daniel to Daniel. And if anybody knows who wrote it, it should be Jesus. And Jesus said that Daniel wrote it, and so I'm going to choose to believe it. And so with all of that being said, as we got into Daniel chapter number 11, uh, the prophecies in that chapter covered the time uh, between Daniel and Jesus, basically. And it told how things were going to unfold during what's often called the silent period. Uh, between uh, the end of the Old Testament and uh, the beginning of the New Testament uh, was about 400 years of silence. Uh, God wasn't bringing any new revelation. He wasn't sending any prophets. He wasn't speaking uh, directly to the people of Israel in any way. And so there was a silent period, but before he went silent, he decided to give to Daniel how those events during that time was going to unfold in such a way that the people of Israel still knew that he was with them even though he was silent, and that he was in control even though he was silent. And so we talked about last week how this is so precise that if people had been paying attention during that time, they could pinpoint the verse that they were in in chapter number 11 uh, and correlate it to the events that was happening in the world around them at that time. And so that's pretty precise, isn't it? Uh, they could find specific leaders and specific battles and overthrows and things that were happening. They could find that written right in Daniel chapter number 11. And so I didn't give dates and names uh, just for the sake of not boring everyone to sleep last week, but I went through and I kind of told the story about these battles that were going to take place uh, above and below Israel. And so it would be with Egypt and it would be with Syria. Syria is the neighbors above, Egypt is the uh, the neighbors below, 
And these two kingdoms that were part of what was separated after uh, Alexander the Great lost his uh, lost his life and his kingdom disintegrated and was split amongst his uh, his generals. Uh, the one to the north and the one to the south were competing empires, and Israel was kind of the uh, the buffer zone between them. So as they were battling, they were going back and forth across Israel. And that's one of the big reasons this was important to the nation of Israel. And the reason why God was revealing it to Daniel was because of how big of an impact this would have on Israel. And so in a way you could say if, um, if your neighbors on either side of you were fighting and were in a violent battle between one another and you lived in between them, it would affect you, right? And so that's kind of what was going on here. And uh, uh, he lays out ruler by ruler, leader by leader, the attacks and the the shift in power between the two, who was going to be controlling what, what kind of kings would be coming, the type of tactics they were going to be using, and even down to some pretty strange things. We find a couple marriages taking place. Uh, one marriage we talked about last week, uh, where the the two dynasties between the Syrians and the Egyptians intermarried and uh, trying to do that for the sake of peace and diplomacy. And whenever things didn't quite work out, they uh, the one divorced the, the wife that he'd gotten through this deal and then uh, went back to his previous wife and she poisoned him and tried to take the kingdom. And then the wife of the, the wife that was divorced, her family came up and tried. Remember us talking about all that last week? And so then this week, uh, we're going to be looking at some of these very same things as well, but we're going to be really zooming in on uh, two very specific rulers uh, that we find in the Bible, and the one is a picture of the other, and these are, especially with um, in relation to Israel, some of the most wicked, most depraved, and uh, most harmful leaders, world leaders, in regards to Israel. I know we could we could look at Hitler and some of the others like that, but within Scripture, we're going to find these are the ones that are going to have the biggest impact on Israel, that's going to uh, attack Israel outright, and not just attack Israel, but they are going to raise their hand against God himself. And so if you wanted to compare this guy to Adolf Hitler, he excels beyond Adolf Hitler. And Adolf Hitler seems to be like a benchmark for us, right? It's like if you want wicked, evil, depraved, it's Hitler, right? That's the last thing that you want to be called is Hitler, right? And this guy exceeds him. Because not only does he raise his hand against the Jews, he makes a full-out assault against the God of the Jews also. And so with that, he is also a picture of the Antichrist that will one day raise his hand not just against the Jews, but against God above as well. Okay, and so that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. And so uh, kind of as I did last week, I don't want to go through and read all of it ahead of time. I'm going to read it as we go through it and as we tell the story here. Uh, but anyway, we're going to be looking, I guess we could say we're looking at two madmen. And uh, I guess maybe that's what I'll title it whenever I put it online, two, two madmen. But anyway, so we come down to uh, Daniel chapter number 11. We're going to start down at verse number 21. And it says, and in his estate shall stand up a vile person. Now, that's not something that you want the Bible saying about you, right? But it says, in his estate, in whose estate? 
Well, we finished last week with looking. Uh, there was a man by the name of Antiochus the Great, and he was the one who uh, instigated battle with the Romans. And the Romans beat him, put him under uh, tribute, gave him a hefty fine for the wars and the battles he caused unnecessarily. And after that, he went through trying to raise up uh, funds through the areas that he had already uh, that he had already defeated. And he tried to go into a pagan temple in one of the towns. And by the way, this is things that we learn from secular history, these fulfillments. And so he tried to go and uh, go into one of the temples in one of the towns amongst the people that he had conquered. And he was pillaging it. He was looting it to try to get the money to pay the Romans. And the people of the town didn't take too kindly to him pillaging their temple, so they killed him, okay? And so his son raised up in his place, and his son's name was Seleucus. I don't think I said that last week, but his son's name was Seleucus. He wasn't a good ruler. He didn't have a lot of uh, motivation behind him, but instead he did all that he could to try to pay the Romans the money they wanted, okay? So his entire... Uh, goal, his entire uh, plan of action for ruling his nation is to try to bleed as much money out of them as they could to keep Rome off their back. And so we saw in uh, verse number 20, then shall stand up in his estate a raiser of taxes in the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed neither in anger nor in battle. So we don't like taxes. We don't like rulers that raise taxes. And apparently things weren't much different back then. And so he was a raiser of taxes trying to appease the Romans. And one of his own men got tired of him and poisoned him. And he died too. And so that's where it says that he was destroyed neither in anger nor in battle. He died. He drank the poison. He died. And so that left him in a predicament because at this point in time, uh, this was Antiochus's son, Antiochus the Great's son that had died here. And we're going to get into this vile person. This is uh, not Antiochus the Great, but Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay? You'll have to pardon me with some of these names, okay? But Antiochus Epiphanes is going to be the one that we look at. And this is the youngest son of Antiochus the Great. And after his older brother dies, his nephew is the one that's supposed to take over the throne. His Nephew is the one that is supposed to rule, but he is too young, and some people, some historians say that he was actually in Rome at this time, that uh, Seleucus had sent to Rome wanting to bring Antiochus Epiphanes back into uh, Syria, and so he traded his own son for his brother. And so whenever he died, his heir, his son, was in Rome, and his brother was there to help rule, and his brother wasn't a king, but was a co-regent. And so let's find out about this vile man, Antiochus Epiphanes, in verse 21. And in his estate shall stand up a vile person, to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. So the rightful heir wasn't there, and he comes in and he decides to offer up his services to reign instead, to reign in, in the place kind of as a substitute for the ruler that is not old enough or that is not there. 
And so as he is taking the throne without the position, he comes in peacefully and it says that he takes it by flattery. So history tells us that as he was ruling in place of his dead brother, that he began to bribe those that were around him and he began to uh, get involved in a little bit of politics, if you will. And so he wormed his way into his nephew's throne. And so he stole the throne from his own nephew. And history backs this up. But remember, whenever we're reading this in Daniel 21, this was still a couple hundred years before it was to happen. It was still prophecy at that time. And so uh, a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. So it wasn't outright given to him. He got it through conniving, through trickery. And then verse 22, And with the arms of a flood, they shall be overflown from before him and, and shall be broken, yea, also the prince of the covenant. And so what happened after Antiochus Epiphanes uh, came in? He got a small number of people to kind of install him in as being the king there. He secured his position as a king by overthrowing and overflowing, as the Bible says here, uh, his opponents, his enemies. Because the guy who killed Seleucus, his brother, uh, tried to make himself a king, and he had a group that was trying to install him as king, and Antiochus Epiphanes got rid of them. Not only that, but also the king of Egypt tried to lay claim on the throne of Syria. Remember how we talked about Syria and Egypt constantly battling back and forth? One of the last things that we saw with Antiochus the Great was that he knew that he couldn't win over Egypt because the Romans were starting to favor them. So he tried to do it in a sneaky way by sending his daughter to marry the prince down in Egypt. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. And he said, I'll send my daughter down there and she will be able to subvert them. She'll be able to work her feminine wiles, if you will, to bring their kingdom around to me and I will be able to steal the throne of Egypt through my daughter. And then after she married the prince of Egypt, her loyalty ended up being with her husband instead of with her father. So the plan backfired, right? But now that means that Seleucus and Antiochus Epiphanes had a sister that was married to the Egyptian king that had children. So now the Syrian king's nephew reigned in Egypt. Isn't this like some kind of a love triangle, like a soap opera? And so anyway, the king of Egypt said, my mom was a Syrian, was the daughter of the king that died, and so I should have claim to the throne. And so as he was coming up to try to lay claim to the throne, Antiochus did away with him, and he didn't kill him, but he put him back home. He turned him around, he overflowed his armies, and so in verse number 22, whatever it says, with the arms of a flood, they shall be overflown from before him and shall be broken. These are the ones who were trying to come in and take over Syria, and he had installed himself through these political means, and then he got enough people following him that he was able to push back against all of these others that tried to move in on Syria, and he defeated them all. And so he was firmly on the throne as a king. Whenever it says, Yea, also the prince of the, of the covenant, uh, many believe that that was talking about 
the covenant that God had with Israel. And the prince of the covenant would have been the priest at that time. There was a priest that was loyal to God. And at this time, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, one of the first things that he did in Israel as he was traipsing back and forth between Egypt and uh, Syria was that he deposed the priest and put in another man, another priest, who had paid him money, who had bought the office, and was going to be loyal to the Syrians. And so we see all this being political, right? And so not only did he overflow all of the enemies, he was even taking over uh, the priesthood in Israel. Verse 23, And after the league made with him, he shall work deceitfully. So there's a treaty, there's an agreement. He's put Egypt back to their place, and now they've, uh, they've entered into a peace treaty, but he's working deceitfully. And after he has taken them and ran them, went through Israel, went down into Egypt, put them back in their place, he makes the treaty and he leaves. And it says he shall come up and he shall be strong with a small people. And he shall enter peaceably even upon the fattest places uh, of the province. And he shall do that which his fathers have not done, nor his father's fathers. He shall scatter among them the prey and the spoil and the riches. Yea, and he shall forecast his devices against the strongholds even for a time. And so he has done all this so far with being an outsider, with being unknown, with having a small uh a small group backing him, but he wants to build his influence. He wants to build his power. So the best way that he could do that is by uh, by bribery and by using wealth, okay? And so basically what he does is he plays Robin Hood. Antiochus Epiphanes plays Robin Hood. And he goes out and he starts uh, taking all of the the wealth that he has gained, all of the um, spoil that he's gotten from these battles, as well as confiscating the money from um, from the wealthy. And he starts taking uh, the money from the, the wealthy and giving it to the, the poorer, to the common people, and raising up a following and a loyalty of these people behind him. And so that gains him popularity, and it also gains him an army, because you need people, Right. By the way, this is something that you still see happening today, that if there can be a political leader that comes in and pits class versus class, and if they can come in and redistribute the wealth and take the money away from the producers and away from uh, businesses and entrepreneurs and things and give it to those who aren't working, they can get a lot of votes. They can get a lot of people behind them. And that still goes on to this day, right? And so this is what was going on. He played Robin Hood. He was redistributing the wealth. He was getting popularity amongst the masses. He had gained a big army. And it says in verse 25, And he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south, that's Egypt, with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall forecast devices against him. Yea, they that feed of the portion of his meat shall destroy him, and his army shall overflow, and many shall fall down slain. 
Okay, so remember, I want to remind you once again, this is prophecy at the time Daniel's writing this. None of these people exist yet. None of these things have happened. Uh, these kingdoms aren't even in power. This is still before Alexander the Great, let alone his empire falling apart into all of his other guys and all of these things happening. So don't forget that this is prophecy whenever this is being written. And so the part that we just read here is that Antiochus Epiphanes, after he gains his mighty army, he's going to take that mighty army and he's going to march against Egypt. Whenever he marches against Egypt, Egypt's going to meet him with a great army. And Egypt is going to lose this battle because the advisors of the king of Egypt, the men that are supposed to be on his side down in Egypt, are going to turn against him. And so Antiochus is going to be able to win this battle. And if you notice here in the middle of all this, uh, for they shall forecast devices against him. That means there's going to be traitors, there's going to be treachery, there's going to be uh, mischievousness, if you will. In verse 26, they that feed of the portion of his meat shall destroy him. That are the That is the people who he is, basically the ones that's on his payroll. Okay, those that work for him are going to turn against him, and that is the reason why he is going to lose the battle. So this gives Antiochus Epiphanes a victory. This puts Egypt in a bad place, and so Antiochus Epiphanes is able to kind of come in here and gain territory, gain power, and increase, and now his his little empire is kind of uh, straddling or excuse me straddling Israel. So not only is he in Syria above Israel, now he's in Egypt below Israel. He has gained a, uh, an advantage here. But something else I want to remind us of is who was the king of Egypt at this time? Yeah, so it was Antioch the Great's daughter's children. So it was this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes. It was his nephew that he just beat in battle. Y'all get that? So he just won the battle against his nephew. And it says that many shall fall down slain. History tells us that in this battle, it was a bloody battle, and there were tens of thousands that died because of this. Okay? And so this is like reading the newspaper of the day's events hundreds of years before the day's events, right? In verse number 27, it says, And both these kings' hearts shall be to do mischief, and they shall speak lies at one table, but it shall not prosper, for yet the end shall be at the time appointed. So this is what it's telling us, is that Antiochus Epiphanes, whenever he gains an advantage over his nephew, that the two of them come together, they hold a convention, if you will, they uh, engage in peace talks, and so they have sat down at the same table negotiating peace. And so this is what actually happened whenever he came down and marched against Egypt. They they were formulating their terms for peace, but it says that both of them came together to do mischief. Both of them were dishonest. Both of them were deceitful individuals. And so they were being two-faced. So Antiochus was pretending that he was going to uh, go into this peace treaty in good faith, and his nephew was also entering into it as if he was entering it in good faith. 
but both of them were plotting and planning and scheming in the back of their minds. Neither of them had any plans whatsoever of honoring their deal. And so we all know how that's going to turn out, right? And so both these kings' hearts shall be to do mischief, and they shall speak lies at one table, but it shall not prosper. So it tells us ahead of time. They're going to scheme, they're going to plot, they're going to plan, but it's not going to work out. Why? For yet the end shall be at the time appointed. They're not going to be able to plot and scheme to overthrow God's plan. God is already predestined. He has already told ahead of time to Daniel even how the end of this kingdom was going to come and when the Romans were going to come in place and uh, how long Egypt was going to remain a power. So Antiochus said, through all of this, I'll be able to take over Egypt. And it didn't work. And so anyway, what he ended up trying to do was there was a problem that was arising in Egypt now. Not only did Antiochus have a nephew ruling in Egypt, he had two nephews. And the two nephews were fighting over control of Egypt. And Antiochus tried to bring in the one nephew into a treaty, into a peace deal, and to keep him pitted against his other brother, thinking that if he can keep them stirred up against one another, then he can keep the country weak and he'll be able to overflow and get all of the country of Egypt for himself. But the reason it didn't prosper, the reason it didn't work out, is that whenever Antiochus left the region, that the two brothers got together, worked out their problems, and decided to be joint rulers of Egypt. And they said, instead of it having to be either me ruling or you ruling, why don't we both rule together? And so they formed a coalition government and decided that neither of them like Antiochus. And so they knew that this wouldn't set well with him, but there was a new key player that was coming into the region that has already uh, entered into the pages of what we've seen, and that was Rome. And so the two brothers, the Ptolemies is who they were, down in Egypt said, we can't combat Antiochus on our own, so let's send for Rome. <laughs> and so that was what he had decided to do. So let's go back to our passage here. And like I said, this is in history books, but we can see it laid out in this uh, prophecy. It says, And both these kings' hearts shall be to do mischief, and they shall speak lies at one table, but it shall not prosper, for yet the end shall be at the time appointed. Verse 28, Then shall he, Antiochus, return into his land with great riches. So he spoiled Egypt while he was there. And his heart shall be against the holy covenant. That's talking about Israel. So as he's leaving Egypt, he's going through Israel, going back to Syria. His heart shall be against the holy covenant, and he shall do exploits and return to his own land. History tells us that as he went back through Israel, that he spoiled the temple. He took the all the gold and the silver and any kind of riches from Jerusalem. And uh, he slaughtered many peoples he went through, kind of laid the place waste there as he was going. One of the, um, trying to remember here. Now I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay. So anyway, he did that just kind of, uh, stomping on Israel as he went across it, using it as his doormat, as his as his little whipping boy as he went through. And so in verse number 29, 
It says, at the time appointed, he shall return. He's coming back to Egypt and come toward the south, but it shall not be as the former or as the latter. For the ships of Chittim shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the Holy Covenant. So whenever it talks about the ships of Chittim, this is basically the Roman Navy. And so Egypt has called for reinforcements. Whenever Antiochus gets his army, he starts marching against Egypt. He gets down there and the Roman Navy comes against him and tells him it would be a good idea if you go back home. And he says, well, give me just a little bit of time to consult with my, uh, with my generals and with my army and different things like that, thinking that he could play the same games and trickery that he had with the kings of Egypt. But these guys weren't near as gullible as the Egyptian kings. And so history tells us that the captain, the commander of this fleet, took a stick and drew a circle around him and said, you are going to give me an answer before you leave this circle. Oh. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Oh. And so Antiochus, being the, the maniac that he was, the crazy guy that he was, uh, found out that he was beaten at that point in time. And so he said, okay, I'll go home. And like a puppy with his, his tail between his legs, he took off back to Syria because he knew he couldn't take on the Romans and the Egyptians. But we also know with what a madman that he was, he wasn't going to take this defeat well. So have you ever seen someone who got humiliated and then they found the first thing that they could to beat up on? Well, the first thing that Antiochus found to beat up on after he was humiliated was guess who? Israel. And so about halfway through verse number 30 there, it says that he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the Holy Covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. And so as he was coming back through, he decides to let out all of his anger and hostilities on Israel. I can't remember which one it was, if it was the first time or the second time that he went through Israel and beat up on it, that one of the reasons why he was so angry at Israel, may have been the first time, was that whenever he came back through, the people in Jerusalem had heard that he was killed in battle and were celebrating. And so he didn't like the idea that uh, they were celebrating his death. That was why he, he beat up on them. I think that was the first time. But now this time he comes through and he decides, I don't like these guys. They are constantly in my way. They won't worship the same gods as we do. They do things differently than we do. And on top of that, there's always been a great amount of anti-Semitism in the world, right? And so anyway, he sets to destroy Jerusalem. And so it says that he shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. Those that forsake the Holy Covenant are Jews that apostatized. There were Jews that had turned away from God, that had turned away from the Jewish religion, and they were sympathetic to the Greeks, which Syria was a part of, the, the fallen Greek empire. And so they were uh, sympathetic toward that. Not only that, but they were also prone to go to whoever was in power, right? And so anyway, he had intelligence with them. In other words, uh, they were on his side. They were 
uh, his insiders into the things going on in Israel. They were traitors. And so in verse 31, an arm shall stand up in his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall uh, place the abomination that maketh desolate. And such as do wit. Now go ahead and stay there at verse 31. And so history tells us what Antiochus did is that he came into Jerusalem. He ended up uh, killing many of the priests, killing a lot of the people. He did away with the sacrifices. He caused all of that to cease. He did away with all the religious rituals and things, and he made it illegal to be a Jew in Jerusalem. He said, if we catch you following after the Jewish religion, then we're going to kill you. And on top of that, he sacrificed a pig on the altar. He took a broth of the pig of the pig that he had cooked on the altar. He took a broth and sprinkled it over the temple. He set up an idol within the temple. And he forced the people of Israel to bow down and to worship that idol, killing those who refused. Okay, so that's what he did. And as he left, he left part of his army behind to enforce this and kill anyone who dared to worship the God of Israel. And so this is how he brought his indignation about it. This is where his arms stood on that part. In verse number 32, it says, And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. When you read about that corrupting by flatteries, that is uh, bribery, basically. What he's saying here is anyone who would follow his new religion and turn against God, he was going to reward them for it. So if you'll turn away from your religion, then I am going to reward you. But if you won't turn away from your religion, then I'm going to kill you. Unfortunately, we see that playing out repeatedly throughout history, don't we? The Muslims have done that. The Catholics have done that. If you look at the Spanish Inquisition, that was what happened. If you'll become a Catholic, then we're going to give you all these wealth and riches. Or if you don't become a Catholic, we're going to kill you. That was the same thing that Antiochus did. We also see this uh, foreshadowing the Antichrist, and we know that in the time of the tribulation that there is going to be the choice that either you accept the mark and you are accepted into his kingdom and you have your blessing in his kingdom and all those things, or if you reject the mark, then you have marked yourself for death. See, the devil just kind of has one plan that he uses over and over again, doesn't he? And so this is what Antiochus Epiphanes does. This is well documented in history, but it was well documented in prophecy hundreds of years before it ever happened. So this would have been going on somewhere around 160 BC. Daniel existed back in like 460 BC. Four, 300, yeah, 300 some years before this. So anyway, what verse was I at? Okay, um, 32 here. They're going to do wickedly. They're going to corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God, the ones who have not apostatized, the ones that were loyal, that were faithful to God, shall be strong and do exploits. Now, there's two times that we've heard that phrase in there, be strong and do exploits. The first time Antiochus Epiphanes did that when he came through Israel and hammered him, right? 
But now it says those who are loyal to God, those who know God are going to be strong and do exploits. So in spite of the wickedness of Antiochus, there was going to be a faithful remnant who was going to stand against him and were going to actually make advancements against his agenda. It seemed as if they were outnumbered. It seemed as if there was no hope because, I mean, look at this. This guy was uh, taking on Egypt. He was ruling over Syria. Who is Israel to stand against them? I mean, he's already kind of sacked the entire place, but there was going to be a small number who would stand against them, and God was going to prosper that. We'll get into that in just a second. Verse 33, And they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity, and by spoil many days. Now when they shall fall, they shall be hoping with a little help, but many shall cleave to them with flatteries. And so what we have going on here is toward the end of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes' reign, there was a man, I believe his name was Matthias, that had five sons. And those five sons uh, began to teach those around them, began to uh, raise up a group of Jews around them, and began creating almost a grassroots movement, if you will, and springing a, rebel, a rebellion against this corrupt leader. And this became known as the Maccabean Revolt. Anyone ever heard of that? If you look at a Catholic Bible, uh, you find First and Second Maccabees in the Apocrypha, okay? The Deuterocanonical books. And First and Second Maccabees is somewhat of a historical account of this period. It is not, uh, it is not uh, God-inspired, but it is man-written historical account. There are some errors in it. There are some different... It's not something to build a doctrine on, but it does give us some context for what was going on back then. Okay? So I will go ahead and put that out there. But that's where most people hear about the Maccabees. But what happened is that uh, Judas Maccabee, that's what they called him, uh, Maccabeus or Maccabee, meaning the hammer, that was his nickname, Judas the hammer, rose up against Antiochus Epiphanes and a small group of Jews, and they did exploits, as the Bible said. And through this, they were able to run the Syrians out of Jerusalem. They were able to reclaim the land. And they were able to cleanse the temple. And so they cleansed the temple and reinstituted the sacrificial system. And the celebration for that is the Feast of the Dedication or the Festival of Lights. Today we call it Hanukkah. So if you want to know what Hanukkah is about, it was the cleansing of the temple after uh, Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated it by sacrificing a cow or a sow meant sacrificing a sow and sprinkling the place with pig's broth. And whenever the Jews reclaimed the land, rededicated the uh, the temple, they had this feast, this festival, after the pattern that God had given them back in the law as a memorial, just like they did with the book of Esther with Purim, they made a feast, a festival, a memorial celebration for the deliverance that God had given them. 
And so this small group of faithful Jews decided to take on a madman and overthrew him by the power of God. And the temple was cleansed and was back functioning and operational just in time for Jesus to come about 150 years later. Okay? And so verse number 35 it says in some of, by the way, whatever it says in verse 34, some, uh, they shall be hoping with little help, but many shall cleave to them with flatteries. What it's talking about there is that many of the Jews had apostatized, but as this small faction began winning victories and started getting a foothold, then these fair weather friends, if you will, started coming back over to their side. They had abandoned them. They had put their loyalties in with the Syrians, but whenever the Syrians began getting pushed out, they're like, oh, wait, we'll go back to the Jews again. And so that's what happened in history. And that's what Daniel foresaw is that these people were not going to be much help, but they were going to cleave to them with flatteries. They were going to come when it benefited them. And some of them of understanding shall fall. So the ones who were faithful and were fighting some are going to be sacrificed. Some are going to be martyred. It says to try them and to purge them and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is yet uh, it is yet for a time appointed. So we ask a lot of times, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Right? We look at this going on in Jerusalem and how they are being used as a doormat back and forth. But here we find that even whenever God's people were standing up and God was giving them the victory, there were still some who were dying during this time. And it says that this is going to continue, that the Jews are going to have a time, if you will, of purging, of purifying. They were going to go through uh, trials and tribulations and trouble. And it says to purge and to make them white, even unto the end. Now, this is going to be a really big thing at the end because we find that the time of tribulation is a time whenever God is allowing a purging and a purifying of the Jews during that time. That during that time, there's going to be a faithful remnant that arises and there are going to be many Jews who will finally, after 2,000 years of rejecting the Messiah, they are finally, after they meet the Antichrist, the uh counterpart here of Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, magnified hundredfold, right? They are finally going to accept Jesus and say, hold on for a second, we were wrong about him and they're going to accept him as the Messiah, right? But this time of the tribulation is going to be a purging, it's going to be a purifying, it's going to be God strengthening his people and pulling them to himself. Because it's not during times of ease and of prosperity that people run to God, and cling to God. It's during times of trial and affliction, right? During times of peace and prosperity, people leave him. And so he says, I'm allowing these things to happen, to purge, to purify, to draw them to myself. But we have something very interesting here in verse 35 that is extremely important. Whenever it talks about even uh, to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. This is marking for us that there is a change that takes place in this chapter. We are going to be jumping from one maniac to another one. Okay? And the reason why I keep calling him a madman and a maniac is because history bears us out. 
He is the one that I talked about whenever he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes meaning the glorious one. Because Epiphanes sounds very close to Epimenes. All of his people around him, his contemporaries, called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the Mad or Antiochus the Insane. Okay? And so that was his nickname during his time, the nickname that his people gave him whenever he says, I'm Antiochus the Great, the Glorious. They said he's Antiochus the Crazy. Okay? But he was also the forerunner of the Antichrist. And that's where we change gears here in verse 35. And I know I'm, I'm getting close to my time here, and we've got quite a ways to go here, but this will be a lot shorter, I think. Anyway, so this is shifting gears. This is changing our attention from Antiochus back during that day to Antiochus in a future date, the Antichrist in a future date. And verse 36 says, And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. When it talks about the indignation being accomplished, that's talking about the tribulation. He's going to accomplish his will until the tribulation is over, then Christ is going to return and going to defeat him once and for all. Till the indignation be accomplished, for that is for that that is determined shall be done. So that that is determined, who has determined it? Okay, God. God has already laid out the events of time. He has already said how all of these things are going to come to an end. He has already determined the course of history before it happened. Okay? And so the, this Antichrist is going to raise himself up against all other gods and against the God of heaven. He is going to exalt himself above every man and above every god, all of these things. And he's going to get away with it. He's going to prosper throughout that time of the tribulation until what God has set out to be accomplished is accomplished. Okay? I want to stop for just a second and say the reason I'm going through all of these things here and going through all of these prophecies and this fulfillment of the prophecies and telling this story is not just so that we have a history lesson, not so we just go through and uh, fill up time, but what this does for us, knowing that this was prophecy at the time, I think that it should do three things for us, okay? And this is the main point of all that we've been doing last week and this week. This gives us three different things. It should strengthen our faith in God's Word, okay? Whenever we see prophecy being set out, written ahead of time, and fulfilled to the letter like what we're seeing here now, so exact, so precise, even as crazy as it was, it was right, Okay, so we can take confidence in God's word and read it and know for a fact it's God's word. That's the first thing. The second thing that we find in this is that God has a plan. God knows what's going to happen before it ever happens. 
And even whenever we don't understand, even when we don't see what's going on, God knows what's going to happen. And so we can rest comfortably in the fact that God is in charge, that God is in control. Okay? And so with that, even whenever it seems like the wicked is prospering, even whenever it looks like uh, the world is out of control, we know that God is in control. So we can rest in God's word. We can rest in God's uh, plan, his purposes. And so we can also, the third thing, and I kind of let these bleed over on one another, is we can know that not only is God in control and his word is true, but that he is going to work all things together. He's going to work all things out just the way that they need to be worked out. Okay? So he has a plan. He has a purpose. He has a power. He has a way that things are going to be done. And we don't have to sweat about it. We don't have to worry about it. We know that God's in control. It's going to happen just the way that he intends for it to. Okay? And so coming back to this, uh, we saw that what is determined shall be done at the end of verse number 36. Verse 37, still talking about the Antichrist. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. He's going to reject religion. Nor the desire of women. Many people think that uh, he is going to be uh, homosexual. Okay? And we see that movement going on and being widely accepted today. It could just be that he has no regard for any. He's got so many political aspirations that he doesn't have time for man or woman. I don't know. But a lot of people tend to, to tend to think that if he doesn't have the desire of women, he's going to have the desire of men. He's not going to regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. He'll see himself as a God. But in his state, in his estate, shall he honor the God of forces, and the God of whom his fathers knew not, shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. Now this idea of the God of forces, uh, we're pretty acquainted with this idea today. It's something that is maybe a little bit newer, but in the New Age movement, it's well known. Uh, People don't send, uh, people don't pray for one another anymore. They send good vibes, right? Mm -hmm. And they talk about the forces of nature and mother nature and how there is an aura and a force and all, all these so-called spiritualized ideas about the way that the world works, right? And that the, that God in most religions is no longer a God, but he is a, force, right? And so this idea that he's going to be bringing out, it's basically demonic. It's spiritism. And so he is going to be empowered of Satan. And that is going to be the God that he is going to worship is this God of forces. Okay? And so he's going to uh, honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus shall he do in the most strongholds and with a strange God whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory. And he shall cause uh, them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. Whenever it's talking about dividing the land for gain, he's referring to the land of Israel. He's going to be over it. He's going to be splitting it up and he's going to be uh, still persecuting the people of God during that time. Verse 40, and at that time, 
at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries, and they shall overflow and pass over. He shall enter also into the glorious land, glorious land being Israel, Jerusalem. He shall also enter into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab, and the chief of the children of Ammon. So during this time, he's going to come into Israel, and the nations surrounding Israel is going to try to overflow him, and he is going to attack them. He's going to be defeating them. Once again, the north and the south, like we've been seeing all throughout this chapter. And he's going to be defeating these nations. And it gives specifically Edom, Moab, and the children of Ammon that are not going to be affected by this. And this would be the region of Jordan. Okay, And some scholars believe that the reason why these three aren't overflown is because that's where you find Petra. Anyone remember Petra? Petra is a fortified city where in Revelation it says that God is going to hide his people. And so the Antichrist is going to overflow all the nations around, but this small area where Petra is in Jordan is going to be left unaffected because God's people of Israel is going to flee and going to hide there. And so remember, we're looking now not into the history. Now we're back into prophecy. These are things that's going to happen during the tribulation period. Okay, I have to hurry through this. And so verse 41, he shall enter also into the glorious land and many countries shall be overflown, but these uh, shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the children of Ammon. He shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And so he's increasing in wealth. He is robbing all these lands that come against him. And it says, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his step. So he's getting ready to go against, uh, the Libyans would be the uh, Muslims in, in Africa, and the Ethiopians would be the black Africans. Okay? And it says they're at his step. That's the next place he's going to pounce. That's the next place he's going after. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly make away many. So just as he's getting ready to attack Libya and Ethiopia, he's going to hear the news, something happening from the, from the east and from the north. And if we compare this with what we see in Revelation, there is going to be an attack taking place from Russia and from the Asian countries, from China basically, are going to be advancing toward him, partially because of their interests in Egypt, or excuse me, in Ethiopia and in Libya. And so whenever he hears this, he's going to leave the two of them alone to go back and try to protect his interests and to go and defeat these armies that are coming against him. And like I said, we could jump over to Revelation. We don't have time for that. 
But we can see what it says there about those armies clashing, him subduing them and gaining further power into the rest of the world. And so, but tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly uh, make away many. And he shall plant the tabernacle of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. So after he defeats this threat from the north and from the east, he is going to set up his throne, his palace, where? In Israel, in the glorious holy mountain. And he is going to try to rule and reign from the temple mound in Jerusalem. He's going to set himself up as God and demand worship. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. Now, Daniel doesn't get a full picture of what's going to happen, but Revelation gives us a full picture that whenever it comes to the end, all these armies are going to be coming together. They are ready to attack. They're ready to destroy. And Christ is going to break through the clouds. He's going to come to the battle of Armageddon. And it says that a sword will come forth out of his mouth, the word of God out of his mouth. And he's going to slay all of the armies of the Antichrist. It talks about blood running up to the horse's bridle and death. I believe that's the same, same battle. And that the Antichrist and that the beast is going to be cast into hell, basically. And so that is going to be the end that he comes to, and there will be none to help him because he is against Christ himself. So whenever we come to all of this, we see that Daniel has just gotten a glimpse of, of history from where he was almost up until the time of Christ and then it skips until Christ takes his church out of the way begins dealing with Israel again until he does away with Israel's enemies for good right and so just as much as the things from the beginning of chapter number 11 all the way up to verse number 20 or 35 have already happened, we can be confident, we can rest assured that all of the events from verse 36 through 45 will also come to pass, right? And so for Daniel, the reassurance for him is your people are going to be plagued with all of these troubles, there's going to be violence, and God is going to be using it to purge and purify them. But at the end, all of their enemies are going to be put down and they are going to be destroyed. There's going to be none to help them. And the God that you're looking for, the Messiah that you're hoping for, is going to rule and going to reign. And the victory will be his and will be Israel's in the end. And that's going to be a lot of reassurance for Daniel as a weary and old prophet, right? But as I said before, it should be a great reassurance for us as we see all these things laid out in Scripture. Hopefully, as I've went through this and I've covered it fairly quickly, hopefully you can see how accurate this chapter was in laying out history, and it will build confidence in, in you of God's Word, knowing this is of, of a certainty, it is God's Word that God does have a plan, that he is in charge, he knows what he's doing, and he is going to 
have the victory in the end. And the things that are going on in this world today may seem out of control, but in the end, they are all firmly within his control. Okay. So with all that being said, does anyone have any questions or any comments on what we've looked at this evening? Nothing at all? Okay. So, for those of you who like history, there you go. We went through a lot of history. For those of you who like drama, quite a bit of that as well. But hopefully, like I said, this is going to give you something to think about, going to strengthen your faith, your uh, faith in Scripture a little bit. And uh, we've got another week or two in Daniel. Chapter 12 is the final chapter. I don't know if that's going to be one week or two weeks or three. We'll see. But anyway, uh, with that being said, if there's nothing else, let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. And we'll call tonight. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We thank you for all that you do for us, Lord. And we do thank you for these things that we find in Scripture. And Lord, the way that you've laid this out, I know that uh, there's many people that will scoff and mock at, at you and at your word, Lord, and say that uh, we have uh, a, a blind faith. But, Lord, we see all these proofs in your word of, uh, of your workings and of your abilities and uh, how this is not just some random book and it's not some story book, but in fact it is a God-authored, God-breathed book. And help us, Lord, to take this truly as it is, as it's your word, and help us to learn from these things and see that you are in charge and that your will will be accomplished. And Lord, just help us to keep our, our faith and our trust in you, that you do all things well. And Lord, strengthen our faith. Lord, we do love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name I pray. And amen.